2: This is the Performance
3: People
1: podcast with me, Georgie.
3: And me, Ben. This pod is all about people who know about performance.
1: We're gonna to speak to some of the biggest performers in sport, entertainment, business, and politics about how they got there and how they stay there.
3: And we'll talk to those closest to them about all the stuff we didn't already know about them.
1: You can listen to Performance People in the usual places where you get your podcast or watch us on YouTube. And don't forget, you can always follow us on our Performance People channels.
3: For now though, here's our latest episode.
1: Joining us on Performance People today are a brother and sister combo who've had the most interesting of professional and life journeys, separately and together.
3: Fran Miller spent most of her life working in cycling as a manager for British cyclists and then in lead roles at Team Sky, which then became the Ineos Grenadiers. Last year, Fran left the world of cycling to take the CEO role at top British fashion brand, Belstaff.
1: Alongside Fran is her brother, David Miller, who is was winner of 10 Grand Tour stages over a 21-year cycling career. He's now perhaps best known as a campaigner for clean sport, having served a two-year doping ban in 2004.
3: And this is the first time that Fran and David have been interviewed together, so we're claiming a world exclusive.
2: We are. I didn't do Team Sky because I, I loved cycling and I was passionate about cycling. I got into Team Sky because I was passionate about what happened to David, not happening to somebody else.
4: When I came into the sports, it was a fundamentally doping culture, absolutely to the bone and had been for a 100 years, basically.
1: David, Fran, I'm so excited to chat to both of you. I mean, for the, one of the reasons that we've just established that you guys haven't actually spoken together before in an interview situation. So this is this is a rare and a privileged scenario. So thank you for doing this chat. I wanted to start, and take you right back to the beginning because you have a shared experience through life um, because you're brother and sister. So you've come up together through cycling and you've, you've ruled that world supremely well. Um, but what about the, the early stages? What about the beginning formative years of your childhood? Sort of just take me back, maybe Fran, let's start with you as the little sister. Take me back to sort of life, life as a couple of youngsters.
2: Uh, so, yeah, we basically grew up, my dad was in the RAF. Um, so David was born in Malta then I was born in the north of Scotland um, and we grew up in the north of Scotland until we were kind of well sort of five and seven or sort of four and six I think and then moved down to High Wycombe um, and yeah we were sort of pr- pretty tight as young kids I think um, but then my parents mm-hmm. got divorced when we were 10 and 12 and David went to live in Hong Kong with my dad so we got split up Um, so I think that's probably been the thing that's galvanized our relationship massively because we spent such a long time of our formative years separated from each other it meant sort of the time that we did have together we really made the most of it
4: from my side of when we were young I think France is right we were we were pretty tight I think from the traveling around as well but we're such polar opposites and personalities in many ways there's a lot of similarities but I'm quite I was quite quiet as a kid and France was the outgoing kind of sort of social one and so we really. So I I lean on Francis a lot to kind of carry situations, um, and that was even as a kid. And that's that's pre kind of adolescence.
3: Were you closer when David you came back to to living in the UK? How did that you know you go through those years keeping in touch and uh, developing that relationship? Uh,
4: I mean, I don't think we did. I mean, I think I I sort of disappeared to Hong Kong and just. It was quite selfish in that respect, and it was before kind of the mobile internet. Um, mm. You know, be, write a fax letter back to mum occasionally when I was forced to, and so I. And then we essentially, for many years, crossed in the air, and it was. I mean, in hindsight, it's it's really sad what happened. But as Franz said, it was. Um, it ended up kind of certainly galvanising us. That's a good word because I think once we almost missed that adolescent sort of separation where you start to kind of rebel against each other because we almost started our relationship in our late teens properly, um, which was really interesting. So we didn't really know each other and it was extreme sides, so we'd only see each other briefly and it would be quite intense moments, either Francis and me in Hong Kong hanging out with my friends. And in the UK, um, I was just getting into my cycling, so I would just do that. So it was, we lived very different lives in, in our adolescence.
2: So my recollection is a bit different. I remember that he did stay in touch. We, used, My dad used to always send me postcards from wherever he had gone because my dad was an airline pilot. So my dad would send me postcards and I'd, okay, I'd occasionally get like what I now look back on and consider probably trolling before trolling was a thing. Postcards <laughs> from David like, we're in this amazing hotel. They've got gold taps. See you later. That kind of stuff. Um, so I'd get a lot of that. I felt like I got at least two or three of those every few months. Um, and then we would speak on the phone as well. And then my recollection is he would come home uh, to the UK, obviously he'd be riding, and we would watch the tour for the little bit of time that we had together. We'd watch, it was in the Indurane era, we'd watch the tour and we'd watch loads and loads of Fraser that my mum had recorded for him on VHS. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we'd sit, sit together and watch Fraser and watch the tour. And, and I remember being super excited about seeing him, Hong Kong, going to see him in Hong Kong. I, I don't really remember seeing David in Hong Kong much. I just remember seeing my dad. So my, t- my recollections of him in my adolescence are very much from our time at my mum's house in Maidenhead um, and kind of just watching the TV and him going out and training and it feeling very, yeah, like special time to hang out together because we probably only got a couple of weeks a year to do that.
3: So, And friend, were you were you into sports as much as David <laughs> or was it... Because of David's sort of love of cycling, that you got into that and then sports, I through, through massively that.
2: rode his coattails. Then I didn't like sport at all, and was like, "Ooh, that looks exciting and interesting. How can I get into it? I'll follow David." Um, I was weirdly though, I wasn't, I wasn't sporty. I went to a, I went to a very, very small musical theatre school in Maidenhead, which had kind of been my emotional blackmail of my mum, where it was like, "Well, if you're going to get divorced and make David and I live separately, I want to choose the school that I get to go to." Um, and bizarrely, she went for it. Good so bargaining I'd, power. <laughs> I know, right? I look back and I'm like, wow, that was Machiavellian. Um, so I ended up at this incredible, <laughs> tiny little school. And um, I would, yeah, I would do dance. But I was, you know, I started at 13 and I was kind of doing good toes, naughty toes. And my friends were all on point. So it was a bit of an embarrassing experience. And then, yeah, I left I left school, didn't want to go to university, went to London, got my first job working as a PA for a very successful guy in sports management. And as soon as David won the yellow jersey, the, the sort of guy I was working for was like, You're a god awful PA, but I think you'd probably be quite good as a sports manager. Why don't you go manage your brother and I'll help you? And that was like 2021 20, then. So that's what I did.
3: Fantastic. What an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So with, with cycling, uh, how, how did that? sort of manifest itself with you David because you're in Hong Kong and um you're between Hong Kong and Maidenhead so you're sort of are you looking for something are you searching for something that you needed in your life that was sort of you know your thing that you could do that you could get good at and what what was it that drew you to cycling in the first place
4: um I I mean I I was pretty sporty um from a young age and but not I didn't like school I didn't enjoy school and sport was my escape. And it was from BMXing to skating to when I got to Hong Kong. It was the wakeboarding and mountain biking. And I just loved these sports. They, they tended to be um, kind of loner sports and outside of the school curriculum. And cycling, when I, because I was fortunate to be in the 1980s. I mean, I was looking, Ben and I, there's only one month between us. So we, we are literally kind of the same generation, Gen X, yeah. pure. And so I experienced the 1980s BMX boom, and then the mountain bike boom, and I was just going into whatever was cool at the time. And kind of there were new kind of crazy sports, same with wakeboarding. And and that led me oddly to to hanging out with some older guys, expat guys in Hong Kong who mountain biked, um, but who came from road cycling. And they saw me on a mountain bike, and they were like, you should try road cycling. and. And I, it was the last thing in the world I'd ever considered because there was nothing in our family. That's usually the trajectory. It's a father, an older sibling or a sibling. Um, but for me, road cycling was a completely foreign sport. And all I saw was this archaic, sort of spandex-shaven-legged weirdo <laughs> sort of uh, environment. And, and, but they started to brainwash me. They gave me videos of the Tour de France. They told me stories. They gave me magazines, books. Uh, And I fell in love with the Tour de France in Hong Kong. And that's when France, when I was going back and it was on Channel 4, and that's when France and I started to watch it, sort of early 90s, like 92. Uh, And I ended up selling my mountain bike and buying a road bike. And and that then became my kind of, the only sport I was truly passionate about. And because, like you were saying, it seemed such a a romantic and uh, rebellious sport to get into because nobody I knew did it. It wasn't, there was no... Culture of fame or or money, Uh, because I think at that point we'd only had three British riders who had ever spent any time in the yellow jersey. Actually, only two, I think, at that point, because it was before Chris Borgman got his in 94. So it wasn't a sport that had any great kind of history for for British athletes. And all of that attracted me to it. And so that's why I got into it, because it was the ultimate rebellion, oddly.
1: It's interesting that you say a loner sport as well and the sort of characters that are are attracted to it. I think there's a real similarity with you. We were talking about this before, but with, with you and Ben in that regard, because certainly for you, I don't know if it's the same for you, David, but for you, Ben, I think, I mean, you can tell us better than I can but it, it, is it is it about that sort of form of escapism these types of sport you know it's sort of this 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 very much you and the bike or you and the boat sort of almost against the rest of the world it's sort of you can block out everything else and just focus on being really amazing at one thing is it is it that well, there's sort of this-
3: maybe maybe I mean there are some of these sports where you can disappear from hour and on, air hour on, hour on end like like cycling and sailing and, yeah you know um and for sure there's definitely some kind of escapism in in that at a a young age maybe if there's you know some other issues going on that you know everyone's sort of um, different as they're growing up aren't they going through different challenges but yeah I mean I certainly love sailing when I I started out sailing in a single-handed boat just going away getting away having control no one really telling you what to do and I'm I'm sure it's the same on a on a bike well it is the same on a on a bike Um, but I mean thing that i I mean I'm so sort of fascinated in in David is you know having been in Hong Kong and then getting into road biking and then you know seeing the opportunity, well you know it's interesting that there weren't like you say there weren't really that many um, Brits really performing at that level. How on earth did you Break try through. And- yeah exactly or find that 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 have mm. that that support mechanism to get you from that that dream to actually it being a reality that's that must have been an amazing experience to come through.
4: Yeah, I think it it was a double edged sword in a way, because the fact that there hadn't been any success and the culture at the time was that it was nigh on impossible for a young British rider to go across the continent and succeed. It meant there was nothing to lose. Mm. You know, there was no kind of precedent. And that was in in many ways that that meant there was no burden on my shoulders. There There was no risk of failure because everybody failed. (laughs) and so when I got back and I was like I'm gonna go and do this and and I thrived off I guess it's kind of Hong Kong mentality I'd lived in Hong Kong in the early 1990s where you know anything was possible you know there was such an energy and Mm. getting back to the UK in 95 and everyone telling me no it's you're too young it's impossible you won't be able to do it and I was like well how do they do it? they're kind of there's young guys over there doing it and and so I I had a couple of people around me who supported me a guy called Mike Taylor and the uh the sadly passed away Paul Sherwin who kind of backed me and got me a club when I was 18 in France and I went across there and got my head kicked in for for two weeks and genuinely thought I've made a terrible mistake they were right and I went to a phone box and called up Mike Taylor and he said hang in there another week and I hung in another another week and and won a race and then it kind of, the, the floodgates opened. But it was, I think, I loved the idea and it was probably the same for Ben as well, when you're told something isn't possible, that's like putting a kind of, a, a red kind of flag in front of me, I'm, I'm going for that. And that's what I was like when I was 18, 19, it was kind of, and I think that's, that's part of what drives a lot of people.
1: And so, Fran, at that time, so David's now in France, and at that time, you know, you're sort of witnessing what's going on with, with him sort of starting out in that, in that professional sense over in France. And, and so what, were you, what was your relationship like then? Because as you said, it sort of grew through your adolescent years.
2: Um, weirdly, I don't remember that that bit very much I remember kind of the bit beforehand when my you know my mum would take him to random lay-bys on a roads and he'd race time trials for (laughs) Highwomen Cycling Club and I'd be like this is the weirdest sport in the world or he'd like come home (laughs) in his full lycra having trained and like not be able to get the key in the door because he was like bonking and I'd be like what are you choosing to do you freak (laughs) um so I remember that bit I know but I don't remember him actually kind of you know I sort of of remember having him having a metro and my mum saying to him he had to like do some st- stack some shelves at Tesco's to earn enough money to go off to to go off to France and and so I don't really remember having much contact with him while he was in France. I remember it being really tough. Like I think my mum was quite worried about him. Um, and weirdly, actually, my mum very rarely tidies out her house, but she was tidying out her house recently and she found his like diaries from when he was in France. And it was wow. so cute. Like he had like can of baked beans, twenty cents or whatever. And it's like and he'd written it all out together. He had the money that he'd been given by the Rainer Fund, which is like a a British charity that was set up after a a family lost their son tragically in in an accident in a nightclub. Um, And he had been a very promising cyclist and they funded David for his first, was it first two years, David, or first first Uh, year? First year. Um, And so Mm
4: -hmm.
2: he had his Rainer Fund money and he'd like keep all of that detail. So I I don't really remember it. I just remember being like excited for him. And, you know, he got things like free Oakleys and, you know, he sort of, people was excited and he was on cycling. He was in cycling weekly all the time. So it kind of felt like, In in my little world, it felt like a really big deal and, like, my brother was doing this really weird but kind of cool because it was weird thing. Um, But I don't really remember much about our relationship other than, you know, just obviously being very proud of him and and taking the mickey out of him relentlessly.
3: (laughs) It's interesting, though, going through those diaries and keeping those notes on expenses and everything. I mean, did you feel already at that stage uh, quite an intense pressure to make it count you know the rain of had come in and supported you. you had a lot of other people helping mm. you obviously to get there you feel like you, you
4: can let them down and you needed to really make it count I, I put so much internal pressure on me and i guess that's what france was saying in regards the worrying as well because i was on my own kind mm. of for a year in france well for eight months and it was you know it was a phone box outside i was in a house where the random french riders would turn up and occasionally like steal stuff and you know there was no we're going to the supermarket in the afternoon to kind of walk the <laughs> walk around eating a chocolate baguette was the highlight <laughs> of the kind of day kind of something to do because I was in more, in this northern village and Picardie I didn't I was learning French somehow and because uh, I obviously didn't speak a word of the language when I got there uh and so there was and I look back on it and it was tough but I'm, I'm grateful I was of that generation, because if I was there now in the same situation, I'd probably be scrolling Instagram, kind of watching Netflix, whereas I was keeping accounts in a book, I was reading books, I was kind of learning the language. And so it was tough, but it was, it was formative to the nth degree. And sure. it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm quite sad for the modern generation, they don't have to go through those, I, I say this in kind of, in as like hardships. Because they're, they're, they're hugely beneficial.
1: In terms, of, in terms of that lifestyle, that's a lonely life, isn't it? That's a lonely, you're sort of on a career ascendancy, but it's a lonely life to be living. It doesn't feel that fulfilling from a personal perspective. But obviously, it's, it's starting to really ramp up from a professional perspective at that time for you, Dave.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it was a, I kind of made my own bed. I was saying before, and probably like Ben as well, I chose the sport because I was a loner. You know, it's a, I always say it's the paradoxical thing, and actually I'm just thinking out loud, not speaking out loud. The parad- paradoxical thing for a cyclist is you start it as a loner, it's not a team sport. Mm. And you, you fly through the ranks and you're kind of you're making your own destin- destiny. Then when you get to the very highest level, world tour, it is the most team sport in the world. And so it means you've got these bunch of loner individuals who are then kind of have to learn how to work as a team and be on the road together. And then you have that contrast of often, you finish the race, you're flying out there back to your kind of lonely existence a lot of the time when you are young. Back then anyway, not so much now. But I, I think it was it was tough. And I think what it's probably what brought France and I closer together because I came from Hong Kong, so I didn't really have my home to go back to. So in my off season, I'd then try and fit a year's worth of socializing into about a month <laughs> and a half. And Quite just, successfully and on occasion. <laughs> <Go>. <laughs>
2: yeah it was well i mean i because I, yeah, I was like yes. like little miss sensible i didn't really like drinking i didn't want to i never liked being out of control i was always like i was always worried about david because he was so extreme and everything that he did so when he was at home i was always like panicking that he would when he was at home in his off season panicking that he you know i don't know be found face down in his own vomit somewhere or whatever but and he never every time we took him anywhere it was never cool enough he didn't like the music. He didn't like the bar. It was, so it was like, we have to go to the next place. We have to go to the next place. We have to go to the next place. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is just the most awful of evenings. And it used to all my mates, who bizarrely, actually, all my mates who I still hang out with now, who David has been on holiday with, who we've now known for like 25 years. It, we've become a very tight group of friends. But at the time, everyone's like, wow, your brother is a high maintenance. And it was, yeah, it was a lot <laughs> I had to find the coolest bars and yeah. the coolest restaurants and the coolest people and none of my friends were ever cool enough and it was always i was just like oh, okay whatever bizarrely i went along with it though which i don't really understand looking back <laughs>
3: yeah but this piece about you know going from individual sport to team sport i mean i can totally relate to that you know from a sort of an olympic background and then getting into races like the america's cup which like like uh you know tour cycling is the ultimate team sport but you mm. both you both got great experience of this from from slightly different angles but I mean, guess starting with you, David. How did you, how did you go through through that process? And did you, looking back, did you think there was enough support to help you to become a team player? I mean, I certainly know from my own perspective in sport, perhaps there wasn't enough, or certainly looking back, my account, I didn't didn't identify that early enough. But do you, do you do you feel like there was a support? And and and, and Fran, I know you you played a major part of that with Team Sky and and the other teams that you've been involved with. Mm.
4: Uh, I think for me that I was very much had a career of two halves and literally split in the middle by my doping ban. Uh, And in that first half, I kind of looked back on that with regret. The fact I was quite a prima donna and I'd I'd had no opportunity to learn how to lead. Um, I kind of came in guns blazing and by the time I was 23, I was basically leading well i was leading france's number one cycling team at the tour de france and um, throughout the season and was their highest paid rider and and the french treated me as french and i i didn't manage that well i kind of was i literally was a prima donna now in hindsight and i wasn't very, i was probably one of the worst people to interview i think within the team on the road i was good but i don't know if i was so much afterwards and when i had that that ban of two years and got to really kind of change as a as a human and and come back with a lot more humility uh i was a much better leader and i became an owner of a team i became uh, i was still a winner still a leader outright but i actually began to relish the role of what we call the road captain which is where you're managing the team on the road and off the bike and everywhere and but that took me uh, kind of a decade of to learn how to do that. No one showed me You'd see some of the riders do some good things and take that. But I, I relished the role uh, towards the end of my career. And so while I was doing that, Francis was at the other end of the stream, doing it, learning how to do it in a different environment. And, and I think building what became the kind of the team which has changed the shape of the sport. But we were doing it in two very different. Francis was leading a whole team on and off the bike. And I was learning how to do it on the bike in the races. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was, it was really interesting how our, our, we had these parallel trajectories and um, literally the other side of kind of uh, the barriers in a way.
1: And during that time, did you both talk about it with each other, the sort of successes and the failures of each of your stances mm-hmm. and, and your approaches on it? Bearing in mind, David, you were coming from one place and Fran, you were coming from another. Did, did, you, did you have those sort of conversations about what was working and what wasn't working and share those experiences? Or did you just keep telling David off for being a prima donna?
2: <laughs> <laughs> do you know what it was actually really difficult because david had been one of the riders that brailsford had identified as potentially coming on to team sky when we went well, before it was team sky it was just this idea of a team that he and i had been working on for about a year um and he kind of identified david and been a bit like you know I wonder how sky will respond or a potential sponsor will respond to having a, an ex doper um and you know jeremy was jeremy darrick the ceo of sky at the time was pretty adamant that he didn't, irrespective of how much David had changed and how much, you know, he'd kind of um, gone through and, and how much change he'd actually brought into the sport, Jeremy was adamant at that time that he wanted to kind of have a completely clean slate for Team Sky. So if we were going to do a team with Sky and they were going to fund us, he wanted to take in a different approach. And, and Braille sort of came up with this concept of zero tolerance, which was... You know, in hindsight, and I think Dave Dave B has spoken about it as well. It was it was a it was a very naive potentially approach, which was this idea that if you if you had served a ban for doping, you couldn't ride on our team. Um, and at the point at which that decision was made, David was one of the very few athletes who had confessed to doping and served a ban. Um, most people get caught, or they deny it for a really really long time, and then they you know through weird whispers and insinuations, they eventually get found out. So. It was this it was this quite stark decision that we made and we ended up you know signing a, a whole group of people who had potentially quite questionable backgrounds but because they hadn't served a ban for doping they could work for the team so david and I had quite a fractious period of our of our relationship not not actually between each other but it was a it was the first time in our lives where we'd had to say right we need to compartmentalize our relationship as brother and sister mm. and our relationship on the road. Um, and so we were brilliant Mates, We still, you know, had I always used to go to the Garmin bus because it was the most fun bus on the tour um, and hang out with him and his mates. We used to talk about all sorts of stuff, but we, we kind of drew a line on we don't talk about performance. We don't talk about uh, decisions that are being made, you know, within our team and within his team. It became, we created a bit of a Chinese wall on it.
3: To say, Fran, how did you support David through that? that? I mean, it must have been David such a stressful period that you went went through with the with the um
4: you know ultimately with the ban um yeah. and how, how did you I think, cope with that i think what was interesting yeah i think what was interesting ben is that as Franz said and it's amazing how you you forget some things i forgot how fractitious it had become between francis and i for a phase then i mean really and publicly as well, <laughs> be I'd be
2: always in the attacking. Freaking in magazines being like, zero tolerance is a shit policy. I don't know why they came up with it. And I was like, you yeah. know why we came up with it? Because I fucking told you. <laughs> that was basically yeah. it for about three years.
4: Yeah. yeah, it was. And we had to like, it, it got to the point where it was like, right, we have to draw this line because it was actually starting to kind of hurt yeah. our relationship. But the, the, but the thing was, France had been the most, and always been the most supportive person for me. I mean, she's my absolute port in the storm. And always have, has been, always will be. And I'd been living on her sofa and, and brought a lot of uh, heat into her life. And uh, for a long period of time, always have done. But there were some really hot periods. And I think it, the, part of that fractitious period came because during the ban Frances stood by me. I'd lived on her sofa, I'd affected her relationships. She'd supported me through thick and thin when I was getting attacked, like left, right and center. And then I came out of it, and I mean, Lance Armstrong called me Saint David. Uh, I kind of came out of it and uh, was working with the World Anti-Doping Agency with International Federations, kind of helped build the, the kind of team, the 100% clean team um, with Team Garmin, Team Slipstream. And I was very vocal, uh, which was part of my mandate. And, and so I took that to the extreme where I thought, well, I'd be lying if I wasn't vocal about my sister's team. Because that would be kind of that's, that's how this sort of thing happens. If I start to do that, then that's basically the omerta again. But it did get to the point where it was like I had to kind of basically rip up my own rule book and mm. say, you know what, I'm not going to talk about Team Sky. I'm not talk- going to talk about bradley wiggins and but it took a, a lot of me talking about them to get to the point where it was like francis saying to me david you stop talking about it now because otherwise this is going to ruin our relationship and yeah. it was but fair fran, enough because so i think I got to the point where my message had got across
1: but fran That's that must Georgie. be equally hard for you as well because on one side you've got dave b saying this is our policy and jeremy Derek, this is the sky approach and then on the other side you've got your brother who's gone through this huge redemption piece and, and, you know, the, the stories that you can tell as a result of having been in the eye of that storm, David, and what you've learned from it and what you can apply to, you know, the next bunch of generation of people coming through. I mean, there's so many massive learnings there. So that must have been hugely frustrating time for you because you can absolutely see why it would be a value for them to have someone like David in that setup.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it is, a, it uh, acts like sort of a f- face value, yes. And I think I originally kind of, For me, it's probably the biggest leadership lesson I learned in my life. Um, And it guides me even now because it was at a a personal level, I would have loved David to have been part of the team. And and as a personal and professional level, I believe that David had something to offer the team that was unique and different to anyone else in the sport at that point in time. However, I also fundamentally believe that the sport needed to change. And I fundamentally believe that that change needed to be systemic um, and it needed to be from the top. And it needed to be done in a way that created um, real uh, conflict in some ways, and 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 that's what we did. You know, it, it it was a controversial policy. Was it the right policy? No, I don't think it was. But was it right for that point in time? Yes, because it it forced conversations that weren't happening. It forced, um, you know, the grey area of okay, well, if you if we think they've been doping, but They've never been core, but there's all this rumor. What does that mean? And the conversations that that was forcing behind the scenes in Team Sky. In- Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed
0: is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
2: in the ASO, you know, people weren't party to that, but I was, and I was party to the, the decisions that Team Sky were making were were changing the face of the sport and they would and my values, so from a leadership perspective, my values. I didn't get into this, I didn't do Team Sky because I, I loved cycling and I was passionate about cycling. I got into Team Sky because I was passionate about what happened to David, not happening to somebody else. And that decision was like, mm. if if we if we make compromises at this stage in the game. Um, at the very inception of the team that could potentially compromise my ability to do that and so my own values enabled me to say you know what I believe that this team is going to have a way bigger, bigger impact on the sport than than me fighting for David to be a part of it and so being able to live by my own values and do that was really important to me and then the challenge I then faced was you know further down the line in Team Sky finding out some of the you know decisions that had been made that I wasn't party to, that I would ne- wouldn't necessarily have agreed with, and everything else. That that then became a that became a real conflict in my own head of like, wow, what is this now, and and what what do I stand for, and how does that all fit together? But at the time, I, and and now, if I if I could turn back time and change the decisions, I wouldn't. I still think I still think that the decisions that Team Sky were making were the right decisions for the sport, and and I and they were very aligned to my values. And being able to watch Geraint Thomas win the Tour de France in 2018 and stack and have my hand on my heart, I would put my hand in a fire for that guy. I know that he's clean, I know he won the Tour clean, and I know that he probably would have struggled to do that in any other team and if the sport had continued the way it had continue, it was continuing prior to teams like Slipstream and Team Sky coming on board. One
1: of the things that um, I saw you talk about was that moment with Garrett Thomas where... Fran was in a photo with him when he'd won the tour and you said what she did with him, Mm. she was unable to do with me. And I thought that was hugely evocative and emotive to talk about it in that way. And that must have given you a huge sense of pride in what she had achieved with Garant, um, but also some feelings of regret, I guess, because like you say, it very much could have been you.
4: Uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, that makes me a bit emotional just thinking about it now, but I think that was what Francis doesn't talk about there. Because I did it, um, when I came back um, after my ban, my biggest um, drive was, this shouldn't have happened to me. And I, I, my motivation for putting so much work into the anti-doping movements and spending years on commissions and putting myself on the line in the media was, was by, I knew that I could prevent it happening to younger writers, if I educated people and if I put myself in the line and I actually went and worked with commissions who'd never spoken to an, a, a, a doper before. And so that was my mission. And I think it, it worked and it took years. But with Frances, it was the same. She was doing it for one person. She was doing it for me in the sense that she knew... Well, makes me little sad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's... um. That was a very moving moment. Yeah.
2: The one thing we didn't brief on this, David, was we weren't going to cry. I was going to say the one thing, I was like, we had a little brief chat and I was like, <laughs> didn't brief Hold, don't cry, let's not cry. So it must be so raw. Yeah. It will yeah. always be raw. I mean, it was, a, it was a brutal, and it remains a brutal part of our lives. You know, it was kind of, and it was so public, you know, the, in, even just hearing David talk about it and me talking about it, it's like we both played these very, I mean, when I was behind the scenes. My team was a very public role player in the changing of the sport. David was this absolutely front and center of changing the sport, and his team slipstream were absolutely part of the change as well. But it it meant that we had to take these very different and opposing positions, and it and and just everything that we went through together as as a family, as as David and I, as teams in the sport. Yeah, it was it was brutal. But at the end of the day, we we as brother and sister we went through a, a really, really brutal time together for a long, long time. And I think it kind of, yeah. you sort of forget how, you forget the the emotion of that and how much that pulls you together when you go through something. Because And also because for, for so many people, it's this like really simple binary thing like, oh, well, he cheated and he got banned. What's the big deal? And you kind of, you, you sort of sit mm. there and you think you, the ignorance and the naivety of that and the, in the sort of, of the, 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 culture that he had gone into as a kid and the environment that he was placed in and the the decisions that he was being asked to make at 19 20 21 years old to say no to doping and that kind of slow erosion of your own values and your slow erosion of your own you know personality and character it's like all of that stuff that I was just like that I'm not going to let that happen but it yeah it's built on a on a place of quite significant trauma to be honest
3: yeah oh yeah before we just before we move on because it's such a key topic in sport What's your, what's both of your take on where sport is currently at, and, and sports like cycling? I mean, I'm I'm really fortunate coming from a sport where, you know, doping isn't that prevalent. There've been a few cases of it in in sailing or professional sailing, but but very few. Um, ultimately, I guess because the the sort of risk rewards aren't aren't there. But, you know, it's clearly still prevalent in sport. And you know what, in terms of the deterrence, I mean, are they you know, this sort of zero tolerance or not, I put my hand up, I'd always been a zero tolerance kind of person. But yeah. certainly reading up mm. on your story, David, I, I have to say it certainly opened my mind to it a little bit more than perhaps where I'd been previously. But mm. where, where do you think sports at now? And do you think the deterrents the are high enough? And, and, and if what changes could be made if they should be made?
2: Can I take that one first, David? Because you can, yeah. you can. David, yeah, yeah, David yeah, sure. can speak far yeah. more eloquently about rules and regulations, and you know his work with Wada and everything else. My, my fundamental belief is, where there are humans, there will be cheats, um, and that's just the nature of life. Um, but I, I also fundamentally believe that it, a bit like burglary, or you know when people do doing other bad things, that the fundamentally it's not about the deterrent; it's about creating the culture that stops people from make wanting to make that choice or feeling they have to make that choice. Um, and I believe that in every walk of life. I believe that if you work in a bank, and the culture that you're in is that it's about being ethical and honest, that that's what you that and you know that people at the very top are making are building that framework and building that culture. That is the greatest deterrent. And um, it's the hardest. It takes the most time. It takes the most effort. It it's paved with you know pitfalls and things that go wrong and people that don't want to live by the values. And and as as we saw in Team Sky, it's it's not bulletproof, but it is in my belief, the only way that sport and humanity changes is if you decide, right, culturally, th- this is the framework we're going to create. These are the values we're going to live by. This is how we're going to support and encourage people to do things the right way. And and that, that I don't believe deterrents stop anyone doing anything, otherwise we wouldn't have crime because there's, you can go to prison. Do you see what I mean? So that's my belief. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been a part of seeing what a, an amazing culture can really do, and it's, it's what I'm trying to do here with Bell staff. it's like create create a place where people feel psychologically safe and if they get presented with things that they feel are outside of the ethical code of both their own lives and, and the life of the business they're in, that they feel safe to raise their hand and say, I don't believe in this. Um, so that's my, my feeling about it. Mm-hmm. But David, I think, will probably have a far more eloquent response around actual anti-doping.
4: <laughs> uh, I, I think you're 100% right regards, and I agree with the deterrence. That was something I was fought for was I didn't believe in the lifetime ban, uh, not in first offence, because um, I think that, again, goes down to the culture of um, of any environment. If there is no second chance, there's no forgiveness, there's no learning. And the human condition must allow for forgiveness. I think it's, it's built into us. It's the, I'm not religious per se, but it's the the very essence of Christianity is forgiveness. And that doesn't mean that it's without punishment or penance that is also part of the duty uh, of the culture you're within. The punishment has to involve rehabilitation and learning. And it's through that rehabilitation and learning that you prevent those mistakes happening in the future. And so for that reason, I think what we've seen, and to go back to your initial question, Ben, regards that, I have seen, uh, since I turned pro in 1997 to now, I my final year is 2014 and I've been watching it close up with headphones on talking about it ever since as a commentator that I saw when I came into the sport it was a fundamentally doping culture absolutely to the bone and had been for a hundred years basically it was part of the sport and deterrents were put in there were there were more and more controls were put in there were contracts signed by riders saying if i dope i will be fired immediately and pay back my salary none of those things made a difference what made a difference was over time kind of building in this the biological passports the whereabouts system the the top-down responsibility from team bosses and sponsors to to actually go and be proactive to the riders and members of their team and say we do not believe in this that had never happened before blind eyes were turned and heads were put in the sand in, and that was when I came back in 2006, part of my mission. And I knew, and I said, if we go back there and look at the things I was saying, at I said it's going to take a decade and to kind of actually for the sport to fundamentally kind of change its culture to an anti-doping culture. Now, most of the young riders that are out there now in 22 are, they're winning the biggest, the big, and I also say the biggest races are being won by clean riders. And I think it's interesting to see now that we've, there's been this paradigm shift and there's 20 year olds, 21 year olds, winning the biggest bike races in the world. That's a full cultural shift. And that was something that would have been considered absolutely impossible like 15 years ago because you came into the sport and you were told it's gonna take you three or four or five years to mature. And what they were basically saying was until you get to the point where you'll start doping. And then, so there was this mindset. So I think what's happened now, is it's a beautiful sport. 50, I wouldn't, I'd happily, I mean, perhaps not happily, if my children, once again, professional cycling, I'd feel absolutely convinced and safe that they would not encounter needles. They wouldn't encounter doping. I mean, I was one that brought in the no-needle policy uh, into mm. all sports, into the water code, because I believe that injections should not be used unless it's for medical emergencies. It shouldn't be used for uh, amino acids or b- glucose or for vitamins. Injections should never be near any athlete. And I brought that code in, and that's another story. It took me quite a bit of work to get them to pass that one through. But yeah, so I I genuinely believe now that this sport is in a good place. I believe that young riders have the the opportunity to exploit their, their physiological and psychological prowess at a young age, which wasn't possible before.
1: Why why dope at all when you were winning simultaneously when you weren't doping? If you see what I mean, that's the bit I don't get because I you you obviously you obviously were winning and it was and you were having success and then the doping was sort of obviously coming into the fore at various at various other times. But why why go there when you knew you could win without it?
4: Um, it was considered in the early late nineties, early two thousands, impossible to win the Tour de France clean. That was just the fact within the peloton, it was kind of, that was part of the omerta. And I wanted to win the Tour de France. That was my kind of goal. And um, and that's what everyone believed I was capable of doing. But I, in, in my weird kind of justification, I wanted to win races clean. And then I could go, look, if I can do that clean, I've definitely got a chance of doing this if I don't. And so I would win Tour de France stages, I would win Volta stages clean and other races, but then it would be a a gateway to going okay this is realistic it's if i can do that and beat these guys doping i I should commit to this because i want to do this and it was kind of it was acceptable because we had the doping culture and as a rite of passage um but yeah it's very hard to explain that to people because i could win time trials i could win road races i could win stage races clean but if i wanted to win the tour de france i was going to have to learn how to dope and so it was this is I say simple as that. That was my. my I also remember, though, David,
2: you saying to me, um, sort of on the when you were on your band, that one of the big things that kept coming back from the kind of the from Cofferdis, which was David's team at the time, was this idea that he's not a proper professional until he dopes. You're not a you're not a proper. Mm. You kind of you're kind of playing at it, David. Um, And it was this Mm. idea that when he crashed in two thousand and one at the Tour de France prologue. They were like, right, David, you've been you've been kind of playing at this long enough now. You have to come and dope, Like, this isn't this isn't good enough. We can't we can't have this amateur behavior anymore. And I remember you telling me that story, and I was like, wow, that is wild. That it was like it wasn't a you've crashed and you know and you've won the, a few of these races and and it's great that you're winning these race, races clean. It was you you could be doing so much more, and it's really disrespectful of you that we're paying you all this money mm. and you're refusing to dope, and now you're crashing in the bike race. Like you need to get your act together. And it was, it, it, and that mm. that to me, to a 23, 24-year-old, what were you, 24, 25-year-old at the time? It's like, mm, h- how on earth yeah. can that be the conversation that your superiors in a team are having with you? And it's a mind-boggling mm. to me.
4: Yeah, there was some serious grooming going on. And I think they they knew that the talent, they, they had a, a huge physical talent in me, but they also knew that perhaps psychologically I wasn't as strong as I kind of had been. Well, they wore me down to the points where, when I was in a weak position at Tour de France and had to stop on the tenth stage, they basically said it's time. It's kind of time to kind of grow up, in, as, as Francis said.
3: Incredible, you say it's the you, the to the club. Till you did it, you weren't actually part of the mm. of the gang, really. It's, uh, it's amazing. But mm. David, you you've got to take a huge amount of pride in, like you say, where the sport's got to now, and you know being a big big part of that. You know, it's uh, certainly you converted yeah. me. Just in this chat, Thank you guys you. have converted me from the. From the zero tolerance you know you get banged to rights and you're out to uh yeah there has to be a better uh, pathway than that and uh and i think creating that yeah. culture well thank absolutely you ben. right
4: yeah
0: um, um, you.
1: and what about what happens next because you two fran you're now you know riding high on the uh, crest of a huge wave with Bellstaff and CEO of that. So what are the big lessons learned from everything from the Team Sky winning behaviors days, which, by the way, I think is the best job title that ever, that ever was. Um, director <laughs> yeah. of winning behaviors. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, and how, mm-hmm. how do you apply that? How do you apply sport to big business? Because that's where you're at right now. I mean, David, you're doing it with your, your line as well. So how do you sort of apply that to um, a business
2: brand like Bellstaff? Um, I mean that to be honest, that was the appeal of Bellsdorf. It wasn't, it wasn't actually so much the coming into fashion because I've never really had any particular interest in fashion. It was the idea I, you know, I've been in, in Team Sky for 12 years. I've worked for Brailsford for, for, for most of my, well, most of my adult life actually, I've been in and around Dave. Um, and I've learned so much. And I just I really wanted the opportunity to see if I could take all of that knowledge and, and lessons and learning and the stuff I've learned from Steve Peters and how do you build a winning team and, and apply it somewhere else. Um, and I, it's the bit of my job that I absolutely love, you know, it's the, it's, you know, building, I, one of the first things I did was I created like a whole mission and I got everyone branded sweatshirts and I was like, I don't know how to do this other than doing it like we're a sports team. So you're all just going to have to come on that journey. Um, and they, and they are, they're all on that journey and we're in a really good place and it's, and it's, a and it's, you know what, it's got the same challenges, you know, I've got, you know, young people coming into their first job. You know, how do you stop them burning out? How do you make them feel they're part of something? How do you give them the right development pathway? How do you make sure that they are accountable and taking ownership? And you know, it's it's all the same things, just in a completely different in a different space. So um I absolutely love it. And and actually that I think that's the bit that I'm passionate about. I think I've discovered coming here that the thing I love, the reason I love Team Sky, the reason I love doing the Elliot Kipchoge Challenge, the reason I love doing this is. I love working in an environment where I can help people fulfill their potential. That's the thing I'm good at. It's the thing I enjoy. It's the thing I'm passionate about. It's what I get out of bed for in the morning. So so yeah, it's been it's been great to come and do it. I absolutely love it here. Um, but I've but I absolutely love it most places I go. <laughs> so I'm like, I've never really done anything that I've not loved because I don't think I'd be very good at it if I went somewhere into something I didn't love. So um uh, so yeah, so I think just yep. developing that, developing that learning and, and continuing to hopefully learn more about how to help people get the best out of themselves really
3: do you find um Fran do you find coming from some sort of intense sport and obviously the riders and everyone involved are so mo- hugely motivated and the work ethic is just huge
2: yeah coming
3: into business do you find the same work ethic or do you sometimes find that because <laughs> you're not waking up each day to try and go and win the tour de France or whatever that um you know people sort of strolling in at nine o'clock um,
2: do you know what you know, the, it's
3: and, a- and walking out the door at five is that is that something that's a challenge or
2: it's a great Not question because i because yeah exactly no uh no it's a great question because i think that the, the biggest challenge that i've faced here is that you forget when you're in a professional sports team particularly at like your level and at the level i was at with team sky the majority of people who are on that team are at the very top of their game you know like they've they've done everything they've been there they've got, you know they are either right at the beginning of their career but they they're the best talent in their you know country or or they've been a mechanic for 15 20 years and they're the, they're the best in the world at it so that idea of like pushing yourself and striving for excellence and marginal gains and all of those things that's a really easy a much easier thing to work with a group of people who are at their top of their game Whereas when you come into a business, there are people who, quite frankly, they just want to pay the bills. You know, they want to go home at five o'clock and see their kids. They don't they're not here to be the best in the world at what they do. They're here to get paid and and trying to get to change the culture to make people feel like, you know, what, being part of something is really special. And you spend more time in your work than you do any other part part of your life. So actually, if you can make it something that has purpose and focus and determination and, and ambition and strive to be better, um, then, then you, you know, you'll get more out of it. That that's kind of the, the approach I've taken. But yeah, for sure, it's a different, it's a totally different mindset that's needed to get excellence out of people in a business environment, as opposed to getting excellence out of people in a high performance sports team.
4: It's so funny you said that because that was my transition out of bike racing into the real world. All of a sudden, I was thought that's how you just achieve things was just going all in. And it was twenty four seven, three sixty five, and and actually, I was like, that's not how you do it, is it? That's not very effective unless you're kind of, as Franz said, at this very pinnacle and on this passion-driven project. And I've been learning a lot of Francis regards that. How do you transfer that kind of that, that this thing that you and I have experienced and what gave us success in the past was that singular drive and that kind of at times ruthlessness and, and selfishness, which is also quite a trait of elite athletes. But then actually transferring the, the good bits of that into, uh, let me say, real world application is not easy. And it's something that Francis has been helping me with chapter three is kind of how do I kind of actually apply my core competencies into a business world. And it's not obvious. And it's, it's been a very steep learning curve for me.
1: Yeah, you're very hard to live with, you elite athletes, speaking as an everyday person that is not an elite, elite athlete. <laughs> oh,
3: Deb, what are we talking about?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Trying to put you in an everyday regular context is not always straightforward. No, um, it's fine. But
0: it's
1: fine. So, apart. so based on the fact that this pod is called performance people, of which you are both exactly that, what do you think is sort of one nugget that you could give to everyday regular people from from your lives of how to perform better every day? Just to, and I guess it's really interesting, David, off the back of what you've just said, but sort of a performance gain for somebody, a performance nugget for someone for every single day of their lives that they can do to perform better every day
4: i'll go first because francis will be much better than mine Um, (laughs) but um as an athlete and as a pro cyclist i was kind of taught or i one of my strongest attributes was not giving up and just don't give up especially in the second half of my career oddly when i kind of came back with more humility and i used to tell younger riders it's like don't give up it's like that's And that's also what I guess they do say in an idealistic way regards young businesses is it's not companies that die, it's entrepreneurs that give up. But actually, I'm not so sure. I think it's choosing your fights um, and making sure you know when not to give up and when to give up. And give up has such negative connotations, so it might just be letting go rather than giving up. If there's something you love and that you believe in, don't give up. But if you don't love it, you might have to let it go. And so that's been probably my performance sort of tip, and what I'm still trying to apply.
2: That's a really good one, David. No pressure. <laughs> 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 um, my first, re- my first reaction was going to be, you know, I-, I have learned, and more than anything else in my life, from from sort of Dave B about, you know, how do you get the best out of people? And I think my my initial reaction was going to be the kind of as as much maligned and, and piss taking as people are about marginal gains. You know, there there is something very, very powerful. And I believe fundamentally in as a human being, thinking about how you can be a little bit better every day. You know, you don't you don't need to be exponentially better. You don't need to be a hundred percent better. You just need to be a little bit better. And whether that's in managing your team or handling how you, you know, how you handle a phone call or how you deal with a, a meeting, you know, you can you can improve all the time in tiny little areas and those improvements will will all add up. Um, so that would probably be my, that was my initial response. But I also think that the big one here at Bellstaff that I've kind of really, really used as a galvanizer is that it, you know, when you're trying to perform at your very best, you need to be happy and you need to be enjoying it. And that finding how, finding a place where you get some joy out of the work, you know, it's like a joke and earlier, said, I've never worked anywhere. I don't love, but I think that's because I take a huge amount of satisfaction and joy from what I do. And, and that makes it easy to have the late nights. It makes it easier to do the long hours. It makes it easy to, to put in because I absolutely love it. and I think if you can find a place, it, even if you don't love the job, be joyful in the in the environment you're in, or find people that you love working with or find one bit of your day that gives you real pleasure because that that for me, joy is such a big part of success and performance. you know when you when you see athletes who are really happy, And you've got everything going on and they've got, you know, their family life sorted and they know exactly what their training plan is. And they they're the guys that perform ultimately because you you fit all the pieces together and you get that. It's like locking in, you know, finally, you know, they might not be happy, but they've got everything sorted and they can they can focus on their task in hand. So, yeah, I would say actually find some joy in it. Frank, can I come and work for you?
1: I want to go and work for Fran. Yes. It sounds
2: like a really yes, nice place can. to be. <laughs> you can come and work for me, Georgie, definitely. Oh,
1: thank you so much. That was the easiest job interview ever. Um, guys, thank you so much for speaking to us. I know, I know it got a little bit Piers Morgan emotional in the middle there, but for very good reason, because it is a very, very emotive and evocative subject. An so, yeah, incredible story. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're hugely privileged to be part of this conversation with you. So thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you two are in your happy places, which you obviously now are. So that's, that's lovely to yeah. see.
2: So thank you, you. and uh, we hope to speak to you soon. Thanks
1: Thanks
3: so
2: much for asking us on as well, guys. Really appreciate it, thank
3: you. So how do you debrief that? I mean, very emotional.
2: Yeah. I thought you were going
3: to go at one point. (laughs) I
1: was. I had to bring myself back from the edge, and that was really hard to listen to for obvious reasons um probably mostly because they've never been in that environment together before so to sort of have to do that um, obviously brought back all those memories for yeah. them but it, it was an incredibly interesting story for them to talk about and to tell in you know in that way
3: yeah and very emotional i mean david must take a huge amount of pride in where he's helped get the sport to and, and Fran as well and really interesting that culture piece fran was talking about culture from high performance sport coming through to business and the success that she and her team are making out of bellstar so Lots of great learnings.
1: Yeah, thank you for listening or watching today. Uh, we're Ben and Georgie Ainsley. This has been Performance People. And remember from what we've learnt today, never give up.
0: Hold up.